Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church, entitled People Pleasing from Philippians 4, 10 through 20. Just a recap of where, where we are and what we've been studying and reading. So the setting is that imagine... In your sanctified imagination, uh, Paul is in a villa in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's waiting trial. And he uh, is receiving word back from all the churches that he started over his missionary journeys. And he hears about one of his favorite places, the church at Philippi. And uh, he hears that they are concerned. They're concerned because uh, the the disciple that he had sent to go take care of Philippi, a guy named Epaphroditus, um, on the way back to see Paul, he got sick, so sick that he almost died. And, and Paul finds out that the church at Philippi has heard this news that Epaphroditus is sick and that he's on death's door. And so they are so concerned because they love him and he is a dear, dear friend. And what they don't know is that he's fully recovered. And so Paul he, he gets his buddy Epaphroditus and he gives them this letter and he goes back to Philippi. And uh, the whole subject of the letter is he's, he's writing them to thank them for their help, for their support. Because back then when you were in jail, when you were under house arrest, you actually couldn't pay your bills. It's not one of those things where they would, they would feed you, they'd give you a place to sleep, all that stuff. You actually had to have people bring you food or bring you money. Um, otherwise you would starve in prison. And so one of the things that the church of Philippi did is they, were, they believed so much in what God was doing in Paul's life that they continued to support him financially to the point that Paul, he is so overwhelmed at their generosity that at one point when he first started, when nobody would give him the time of day, uh, they were the only ones that believed in him and believed in what God was doing. And so these people have been with him since the beginning and so his letter to them is a really a thank you note. He's, he's telling them all the ways that God has worked through them. He's telling them all the ways that, that God allows us to, to work within, within the group as a unified body of believers. And so he encourages them in all of these things. And, and the theme is unity, that we're in this together. Even though they are miles and miles away from him, he is encouraging them and they have been an encouragement to him. And so... Through the course of his letter, he's told us a lot of different things about unity, a lot, of, a lot of good lessons about how we are in this together. And so tonight, we're going to look at the final thing, the final encouragement before he sends out his, uh, his, his signature. Um, and we're going to look in the fourth chapter of Philippians. We're going to, we're going to tackle the verses 10 through 20 tonight. So in these, in these verses, Paul is going to talk about... Um, his gratitude and how unity has had a tangible effect, not just on, not just on him, but how it's also had a, a tangible effect on the people at Philippi and also God's observation as he watches his children walk in unity as they work out the gospel in their, in their environment and in their culture. So check this out. We'll start in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and how to make do with a lot. If any and all circumstances, uh, I have learned the secret of being content, whether 
well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. The first thing that we're going to look at is how, how unity has affected Paul. So think about this. Think, put yourself in his brain space for a second. He is alone. And he's alone in Rome. He's under house arrest. He has, uh, he has Roman centurions watching him all the time. And he says in the very first part of his letter, he said, this has actually been so prominent. I've seen God move in such a powerful way. Even in my hardship, these guards are watching this take, take place in front of them. And now they're starting to ask questions about the gospel. They're starting to ask questions about what God is doing in my life because they see me in chains and they're like, what in the, what in the world's up with this guy? And he says, I've gone to the, grown to the point to where I am displaying my own captivity because it's, it's making an impact on the guards that are watching me. And so Paul is in prison. Think about this. He has no security for his income. He's no, no way to, to know for sure how he's going to pay his bills, how he's actually going to have food on the table the next day. And yet the Philippians have been continually supporting him over and over again. And this shows us, look at verse, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. You see, one of the things that, that we miss out, we, if we've been doing church for a long time, we take things for granted, especially in our, in our culture, in our modern, modern day setting where we look at, oh, well, we've got a pastor, we've got a worship leader, we've got, um, you know, all of these positions on staff at the church. And we kind of take that for granted. But in Paul's day, one of the things that is a central theme is that there was none of that. There was none of that organization. And so for him, he is walking step by step in faith. Everything that God called him to do, he has to step out. And he's, he's blazing a trail, trusting that God is going to take care of him. And so to have someone invest in what God has called him to do is life-changing for Paul. See, as you, as you grow into your ministry, what God has called you to do, what's going to happen is that he's going to call you to really difficult things, challenging things. And there are going to be people that, that God puts in your life that they see something in you that they want to invest in. Either they want to invest time or they want to invest resources. They want to go out on a limb to make sure that you are able to be obedient to what God's called you to do. And for, from Paul's perspective, he says, look, you were looking for a reason to come help me, but you didn't have the opportunity. From his perspective, this is something that gives him strength. It gives him a reason to get up in the morning. Don't ever underestimate the power of your influence on your pastor. When you guys see me, when you guys are around me, when you, when you see Pastor Michael on Sundays, um, know that how you, that you have just as much ministry for them as they have for you. That there's nothing significant or special about being a pastor. It just means that God has pulled you out of, of the general population to serve in a dedicated, dedicated season. So know that when you guys see your pastors, when you see people who are investing in you, you have a direct impact on them. You have the ability to speak life, to encourage, and to see how, how God has called them to do hard things. You have the ability to be able to speak into their life and do things that, are, that, that no one else can do because you're bonded to them in intimate ways. Paul's, he's not encouraging them because he, they sent him money. That's not what this is about. He's saying, look, you didn't even, you are looking for ways to invest in me. You, this isn't just about asking you for, for more cash. He's saying, you know, even though the logistics were difficult, 
you have a sincere affection for me. That's what Paul's saying. Is that that's one of the things that is so profound about being a pastor and being able to invest in people is that you, you, don't, you underestimated at first on that you have with the people that you do ministry with. That when, you guys may not realize this, but when I see you, there, there is a, a shepherd's heart that God has given me that I sincerely want you to win. I want you to succeed. I want you to grow. I want you to be challenged and to do hard things. Because to see that, to see you grow, it's encouraging to my heart. Not just because I, I want this group to grow, not just because I want reach to thrive, but because I want you to live in victory and to actually move the, move the ball forward. This is something that, that encourages me, encourages us as pastors. Look at verse 11. Paul says that he knows the hearts of his people. Look at verse 11. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. He says, I'm encouraging you because I don't want your money. I'm, in, I'm encouraging you because I care about you. I really care about you. I know your heart. He's got a deep compassion and admiration for his church. He says, I don't say this because I have need. See, one of the things about our lives is that we've got to realize that our circumstances and our resources are tools for us to be obedient to Christ. Notice Paul's words here. He doesn't say, hey, I really care about y'all. Uh, when was the last, uh, is the check in the mail? That's not what he's saying. He's saying the money is irrelevant. Honestly, the support is irrelevant. To know that you're with me in my corner, that's encouraging. That gives me strength every day. This is something because I know your heart. I have a sincere, deep love for you. And I know that you care, care about me the same. Look at verses 12 and 13. He talks about where satisfaction comes from. Now, in, this, in these verses, there's, there's one in particular that is used out of context quite often. So check this out. Verse 12 says, I know both how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's talking about is that true satisfaction comes through one thing, and that's Jesus. True satisfaction comes through a relationship with Jesus, a true listening, abiding relationship in Jesus. He talks about that. He says, he says that you are an encouragement to me. I care about you. I know your heart. But you know what? My circumstances are irrelevant. Whether or not I have food, it's irrelevant. Whether or not I'm comfortable is irrelevant. But to know that we're in this together and that Jesus is the foundation of all of this, it gives me satisfaction. In the original language here, it says, he, he says, I know how to make do with a little and, and make do with a lot. The little describes in the original language as, as to make oneself humble, to make oneself abased. What that means is that he says, I know what it means, not just to lack stuff, tangible things, but he says, I know what it means to be a little person, to be an invisible person. I know what it means to be someone who is made fun of. I know what it means to be someone who is discarded. I know, I've ridden that wave. He says, but not only that, I also know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to be well-known. I know what it's like 
to be the one that everybody wants to talk to. And he says, no matter where I am in my situation, I am content. Why? Because the true source of satisfaction is not circumstances. The true source of satisfaction is our relationship with Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here. So that leads us into this, uh, some key fundamentals here. That he's making the point that our circumstances are going to change, right? We don't get to decide what they're going to be. And our contentment doesn't come from those mere situations, but they come from our true relationship with Jesus. And that's why he moves into this verse in verse 13. He says, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is, this is quoted out of context. I don't know. I see this all the time, especially on social media. There's all, there's all kinds of graphics for this one. I saw one the other day that said, I can do all things through a verse quoted out of context. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> see, we, we hear this in our culture of that this is a verse that's like, you know, it means that I can do anything. That means that I can overcome any hardship. I can, I can climb any mountain. I can slay any Goliath. I can do all of these things. Yep, but the truth is that he's saying that if my satisfaction comes from my relationship with Jesus, my circumstances are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what challenge I'm in. It doesn't matter what hardship I'm in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I'm going to overcome. He's saying I am going to live in absolute divine victory, not because my situation changes, not because my external situation changes, but because my confidence, my satisfaction is in Christ. You know what? There's going to be seasons in your life that are just going to suck. And no amount of, of quoting verses out of context is going to change that. And you're going to be like, well, wait a, wait a minute. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that means that you've got to embrace the suck sometimes. You know, and the, tru- the truth is that, that what he's talking about here is this divine perspective that, that's separate. It's separate from focusing on our situation and focusing instead on Jesus. Think about the story of Peter walking on the water right? We know this story. He is, he is, he and the disciples, they're, they're on the boat. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and he sends the disciples ahead. He says, you guys go ahead. I'm going to spend some time with the father and, and be alone for a little while. So they go out on the sea of Galilee and sure enough, you know, the storm comes and it is like white water, like throwing the boat around. They're afraid they're going to sink. And they see this person walking on the water. And sure enough, they say, it's Jesus. And Peter, being Peter, he's like, if it's Jesus, hey, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out to you. And so what does he do? Jesus says, come on, let's go. And so Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk on the water, watching Jesus. And you know what it says? That Peter got distracted by the waves and he fell into the water. But I want you to think about this. Is that whether or not his eyes were on Jesus or he was watching the waves, the waves were still there. The, the primary difference between being someone who is a, a God abider, who remains, who is a listener to the Holy Spirit, who is attentive to the Holy Spirit, the main difference between that person and someone who is focusing on their circumstances is whether or not they're walking on water. You know, I find it interesting that once they got back to the boat, that Peter was the only one that had been swimming. Yeah, sure, there was probably rain on some of the others, but he was soaking wet. 
I wonder what was going through his mind as he sat on the boat. Everybody else was just in awe of what happened, and he was thinking, oh my goodness. You see, for us, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, not because the waves are not there. Not because we're going to pull out a metaphorical jet ski and start dominating life. That would be awesome. (laughs) But the truth is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because in spite of the waves, we walk on water. But the waves are still there regardless. What he's saying is that if Christ is the focus of our lives, not our circumstances, that we can do incredible things because we're gonna draw strength and encouragement from, from God moving in people's lives. One of the principles of scripture is the strong bond that forms between a leader and his followers. What Paul's talking about here is that his church family in Philippi, that that their faithfulness has given him the strength that he needed to face whatever God called him to do. As Paul is experiencing these waves around him, because of his friend's faithfulness in Philippi, he is able to be sustained, to be content, to do all things through Christ who strengthens him because of their support because of their influence on his life. This is an incredible privilege that we have to be able to do these things together. We've got we've to remember that when we're serving Christ, how we support our leaders is going to have a tremendous impact on them. Paul is not, he's a human being. He had, he had anxieties, he had fears, he had self-doubt. All of the things that we face every day. And yet Philippi, the church at Philippi, encouraged him, and they were a source of strength for him. So what does this mean for the Philippians? Okay, so that we see how Paul has been changed by their influence. What about the Philippians? Look at these next couple of verses. Beginning in verse 15, he says, And you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica... You sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. I want you to think about this. Think about this from the Philippian point of view. So they hear that Paul, their friend, is in prison in Rome. And their buddy Epaphroditus, now he's sick. He's probably dead by now. And so they're, they're concerned about their friend. And all of a sudden, somebody comes into town and they've got a letter from Paul. We've got a letter from the apostle. So this church, they gather around the person reading it. They're all huddled together. People in the back are craning their necks to be able to hear it. They want to know, they're hungry to know what's happening with Paul. What's happening with Epaphroditus? What's happening with Timothy? All these men that they love, that they've seen God move in their lives. And they hear this at the end before anybody believed in us. You did. Before anybody had faith in what God was going to do, you did. Look at verse 15. He says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. See, Paul reminds them that what, what he has accomplished, they've accomplished because of their obedience. He reminds them that out of everyone that he's met on his journey, they are the original. That he loves them so much because they believe when no one else would. 
this is the coolest part right here. Look at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that, has been, that is increasing to your account. Some old school Bibles, they, they translate profit as fruit. Now, we've talked, we talk a lot about fruit in here, don't we? Um, the, uh, that is a possible translation for that word. But as I've been studying, the, the, the translation of profit is actually more appropriate. Because we have this, this false idea that's this, been kind of twisted because we carry remnants of old Bible translations with us that in, the, in like the King James, James Version, I call it the King Jimmy Version, and the New King Jimmy Version, um, fruit is universal for, for gain, right? For, for increasing. But in this specific application, he's not talking about fruit. He's not talking about spiritual fruit. He's not talking about fruits of the Spirit. He's talking about an increase in heavenly reward. He says, I don't ask you for money. I'm not telling you this because I want money. That's what he's saying. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Think about this. That he's telling them that I am anxious. I am excited to ask you to help me because I know that in doing that, you get to reap a spiritual reward in heaven. Now, think about this for a second. How many of you have been on a mission trip before? I'm curious. Okay, just about everybody, right? Here's the thing. Did you have to raise money for that mission trip? Did you have to maybe work a little extra to pay for it? Have you ever thought that asking somebody to help you be obedient to what God's called you to do that it's actually an invitation for them to benefit through your obedience. This is why it's a completely ungodly mindset to ask for help. We have this American idea that, oh, well, I, I don't want to ask somebody for money because if I ask them for money, then I'm a moocher, right? That somehow I've got, to boot, I've got to pull this up on my bootstraps and I've got to pay for this thing because that's what good Americans do. Now, there are people that take advantage of God's people. But you know what? Matthew 6 tells us that we don't pay our bills. So if somebody is drafting out of somebody else's bank account, it doesn't affect you, why are you upset? If God's going to take care of you, I mean, let's be honest, right? It's like, I can't believe that person took advantage of me. Oh, well, you know, so? They didn't take advantage of you. The Lord knows how his money's being spent. This idea of asking for help is something that is rooted in biblical principles. Paul says, I don't, your money is irrelevant. I ask you to be a part of this because I want you to be a part of what God is doing. So if I talk to somebody on my journeys after I've asked for your help, asked for your support, and they come to know Christ, guess what? That's a return on your investment. You have now taken part in what God is doing in my life. So this idea of saying, oh, well, I, I, I'm too embarrassed to ask people for money, or I'm going to send in a, 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 a really bizarre letter in the mail and just kind of hope that people answer me. We should boldly come to people and say, hey, look, God's called me. He's called me to go to Nicaragua, or he's called me to go to Utah, or he's called me to go wherever. He's called me to go to, 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 to uh, Spring Week with the BCM. Will you help me? Do you want to share in that reward? And if they say no, they say no. God may tell them no, and that's totally cool. But God may tell them yes. 
Some of you in this room have stepped out in faith that God would do something, and he does. It's like, you know what? I really feel like God's called me to go on a mission trip. I have no way to pay for that. Guess what? God does. It is an unbiblical idea to not ask for help. Because what it does is it elevates ourselves, it elevates our pride by saying, you know what? God needs me to help him out here because clearly he's a little shorthanded. And that's not how this works. What's incredible is that we've been invited to be a part of this. We've been invited to share in the, in the, in the profit, in the gain, in the, in the growth of the spiritual kingdom by investing in someone else. The church at Philippi didn't sit there and go, man, we need to check Paul's bank statements. I bet I want to make sure he's spending this money, right? They knew that if he was being faithful to what God called, them to, called him to do, that their resources be, would be used well. Remember, our resources are tools. They're tools to accomplish what God has called us to do. They're not meant for our security. They're not meant for our safety. They're not meant for our comfort. They're meant for the use of spreading the gospel. And so if we have a right understanding of our resources, if we have a Matthew 6 mindset where we are seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, that all of these things are going to be added to us. Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about your money. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't even worry about the clothes you're going to put on your back. Jesus says, this is absurd. He says, after these things, the ungodly people, the people with no hope, with no no semblance of understanding, these are the things that they trust in because it's the only thing that they can hold on to is their financial security. But he says, seek me first. Abide in me first. Remain in me first. And all these things will be added to you. Paul is, is living this out. And, he's, and he is telling them, your investment is, pu- is proving a return. This is something that we should look at. We should look at with understanding, knowing that, that, you know what? This idea that, oh, I'm 18 years old, I'm 20 years old, I don't make a whole lot of money. That's just not, that's not a good argument at all. It's not a biblical way to live, to think that God doesn't have the resources to equip you to do what God's called you to do. Your age is irrelevant to your obedience. He says, obey. I will work it out. Obey, I will work it out. Because there's people who don't have the health that you have. They don't have the, the energy that you have to be able to go. And you know what? They remember what it was like to be 20 years old and to be called to go on the mission field, to go do incredible things, to go slay the dragon and charge the hill for the cause of Christ. And you know what? They're hungry for you to taste that Because in doing that, they're able to share in what God is doing in your life. And when you come back and and those people have invested in you to be able to stand up in front of your church and say, look, oh my goodness, God changed my life. I went to Nicaragua and I passed out ibuprofen to homeless people. But you know what? I see what it's really like to live and have Jesus be the only thing It was 98 degrees every day and I slept in my own sweat and it was amazing because I saw people's lives changed. This is something that is worth asking people to be a part of. So if Paul is saying, you've invested in me and it's, it's, oh, it's enriched my heart. And the Philippians, man, they've invested and it's enriched their heart. 
What's the perspective of the father as he looks down on all of this taking place? Look at this. Check this out. Verse 18. He says, Paul says, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Another verse quoted out of context quite a bit. Let's unpack this. This is the effect of unity on God. So God looks down and he sees this, sees this taking place. Paul says in verse 18, I've received everything that you've sent and I, my heart is overwhelmed. I'm full. I lack nothing. Spiritually and physically. I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. Look how he describes what they sent. They literally just sent money. They sent money and a few little things to help, help him as he is finishing out his days waiting to be put to death. He describes this as a fragrant offering. In fact, in verse 18, when he talks about having uh, everything, another way that that can be translated is that he says, I am full to the brim. If you guys ever poured yourself a drink and it's so full, like you're at Quick Trip, right? You go on a Quick Trip and you get your big cue and, it's, and you, you obviously can't stop early because the... the fizz and everything, but it's so full that before you can put the lid on it, you're going to have to slurp a little bit, right? (laughs) This is a picture of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you've sent this to me. This guy's in how under house arrest. This is his mindset. He's like, oh my goodness. I'm full to the brim. You know how you make it back to the counter like this, trying not to spill everything because you don't want to, and then you put the lid on it. He's saying, my heart is full to the brim. Oh my goodness, I am overwhelmed. That's what he's talking about here. He says, I'm fully supplied. A fragrant offering. You know, last year, we started the year, last year was the year of transformation. And what he's saying here is that this is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. These are the exact same phrases that he uses in Romans 12 where he says to live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is your reasonable service or your reasonable act of worship. He says that your faithfulness is living out Romans 12. Your faithfulness is the same as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. That this is an aroma. This, the, the descriptions here are from the Old Testament where they would sacrifice. They would sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people. And what they would do is they would lay the animal on a fire and they would, they would sprinkle it with different, uh, different spices and herbs and there would be a smell. They would fill the temple. And that aroma is described as being pleasing to the Lord because it, because it represents a joyfully giving heart. It is a heart that is fully devoted to God. It is a a heart that has said, I am yours. I, I commit myself to you. Paul says that by them giving this gift, the father looks down and this is a pleasing aroma to him. That it brings joy to his heart, to his soul. He says that, that this is something 
it proves that God is the one who takes care of everything that we need. So, verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let me talk about that for a second. Just like we talk about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember, context is key here. He's not talking about overcoming a hardship. He's talking about the gift of investing in someone else. That our situation doesn't matter. He's talking about a joyful heart. He's talking about a heart that is completely devoted. So now he gets here. He says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. We have, we have an idea for some reason. I don't understand this. We've believed the lie that we make stupid decisions and then when we finally get to the point where we're out of control and we can't save it, we can't fix it, where we lay all of those expectations on God and we expect him to bail us out because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and he's going to supply all my riches according, all my needs according to his riches and glory. And then guess what? We do it with an unrepentant heart. We pound our chests. We say, God, where are you? And when he doesn't fit our expectations, we get angry. But that's not how this works. Paul's talking about a total mind shift. God supplies all of our, to all of our needs according to his riches and glory through what he's talking about here. A fragrant sacrifice, an open heart, a sacrificing heart, an abiding heart. God loves to take care of his children. The most precious thing that you have in your life is your relationship with Jesus. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not your clothes. It's not your relationships. It's not your friendships. It's your relationship with Jesus. And if you live in a way that puts him, in, him on display in the relationships that you have, where you give when your friends know that they that, that God's called them to do something and they need your help. God puts it on your heart to help them. You do it because it's a, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you know what? You can give confidently because you know he's going to supply all of your needs. It's like, well, I, you know what? I know my buddy really feels called to go on a mission trip or they feel really called to go do this ministry. Or how about this? They feel really called to quit their job because God's called them to do something. And I'm going to give up my savings account to make sure that they can be obedient. And God's going to supply all of, to all of my needs according to his riches and glory. I'm going to be radically equipping my friends. I'm going to be radically obedient, knowing that God has given me resources on purpose. I'm going to be radically sacrificial because I want people to win. I want people to walk in obedience with Christ. Money is the stupidest reason for you to be disobedient. It is the stupidest reason for you to ignore the call of God in your life. Well, God, I can't really do that because I don't have a job yet. I'll do that when I get out of college. God, I can't really do that because I'm not married yet. God, I can't do that because I am married. God, I can't, I, there's all these, I can't. Here's the thing, it's that devil, the devil loves to fill your head with all the I can'ts. I can't, I can't do that. I've got these obligations. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't is not a biblical idea. Call it what it is. Well, you're not saying I can't. You're saying I won't. 
I won't be obedient. I won't give my money because it's my money. I earned it. I won't sacrifice my time for someone who needs my help. I won't make that phone call for the friend that needs my support. I won't refer someone, even though I have it within my power, within my network, to encourage them and to help them be equipped for what God's called them to do. This is the truth. God is going to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a key phrase here. Because everything is about Jesus. He's the source of our satisfaction. He's the purpose of our life to share the gospel, to make sure that we are there to equip our friends. And you know what? If they betray your trust, God takes that personally. That's not yours to pick up and carry. Your job is to be faithful. He will supply according to all of your needs. Do not worry about your life. God's the ultimate provider. You see, as children of God, we should revel in the idea of obeying God. This should be something that is exciting to us. To live on the edge. That I could do something radical. Like, I don't know, be obedient. That I would accept the challenge. That I would see the people around me as opportunities to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. That I would be humble enough to receive the sacrifice of someone else. And carry that investment knowing that they are going to increase in their heavenly bank account for the cause of Christ. You see, as one of the things that I hope that you have noticed in this whole series about unity is that we have been invited to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We've been invited to do something that is bigger than just the things that I can accomplish. And you know what? When we do that, it encourages those who, who are being invested in. It, it is going to encourage us. But the most important thing is that it's going to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. And that is what we should be about. We need, to, we need to change our way of thinking that the sacrifices that he calls us to make, these are not opportunities for us to suffer. These are opportunities for us to see God move in incredible ways and to be co-heirs with Jesus in the words of Paul in Romans 8. That's an invitation that we should not quickly dismiss. So I want to encourage you in this. As you look at this year, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to do. And there's going to be things that are going to fit, things that are going to, be, that are going to stretch us. And we're going to have opportunities to do incredible things if we think outside of ourselves. Utah is a great example. We're going to take a fall retreat in October. We're going to go to New Life Ranch. And we're going to have fun together over a couple of days. We're going to do more things with the BCM. We're going to do another gathering. Listen, I know that the gathering is not for everybody. I know that it's different than a lot of things that we do because the music sometimes is different and it's that way on purpose. The reason why is because we have an opportunity to do something for others. And there are people who are not from our same, our same uh, traditional background that worship differently, you know? And while that may be different than our preference, 
we have an opportunity to be able to encourage them and to speak life into them and to earn the ability to have conversations with them. I think it's incredible what God's doing in young adult ministry in Tulsa because you had, there was, there was no less than six or seven churches represented on Sunday night. The first time that we had the gathering, there was about 160 people. On Sunday, there was over, I'm guessing there was over 300. That's incredible. All different traditions of the faith, all different kinds of ways that, that, that people want to worship and pray and be involved. This is exciting because God is doing something. And we have a front row seat. We have an opportunity to invest in that movement. And you know what? As we spend time with people that may not be from the same background as us, we may start to realize that they have some things in common with us. And that we have deep friendships that are waiting if we would just take them. So be encouraged to be someone who is going to invest in others. I'm excited about what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. Um, here in two weeks, we're going to have a worship night here. Uh, it, is going to, it is going to be a simple worship night. And what we're going to do is we're going to do some songs. Sam and I are going to lead some songs. But we're going to go through what it means to worship. Why we, do, why we worship the way that we do. Why do we, wh- are there different types of songs that we sing? Are there different ways that we worship? How are we supposed to pray when we worship? Then we're going to take communion. We're going to talk about that. Why do we pause before we eat the wafer? Why do we wait? Why do we wait to drink the cup until everybody has it? Is that just being polite or is that scriptural? There are certain things that we've been doing since we were kids in church and we, maybe you haven't ever explored those things. And so we're going to do that. We're going to take communion in two weeks. We're going to worship. We're going to spend some time thinking about it and, and learning about what it looks like so that we can be true worshipers biblically. And the next series that we're going to do, we're going to look at different young adults in the Bible that exhibited different spiritual gifts throughout their life. Are you a helper? We're going to talk about that. Did you know that you're the most prominent gift that God says in Scripture? Someone who helps, someone who serves. That is the most prominent gift in the Bible. It's not teaching. It's not preaching. It's not leading music. It's serving. We're going to talk about teachers. We're going to talk about people with wisdom, people with the gift of prophecy, all these things, we're going to look at young adults in the Bible that exhibited these gifts. And you know what? We're probably going to talk about you. Because God has given each of you a spiritual gift if you're in Christ. There's a lot of fun things going to happen this year. And I want you to think about how you're going to be a part of it and how you're going to invest in it. And only God knows what that is for you. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 630 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, watch over us. Bring your glory down.